Amen. Amen. Thank you for that, Gabby, and thank you, praise team. I love that song, don't you? Sing a hallelujah. My weapon is a melody. I love that line, too. Just a beautiful thought that literally one of the ways we do fight our enemy is through praise and through song, and so what a wonderful opportunity that is. And now we want to fight them through the Word of God. We want to really have a, a focus in God speaking to our heart today from the Word of God and encouraging us. I'm going to begin our new series today from the book of Mark. Mark. So if you take your Bibles to turn to chapter Mark, chapter 1, I'm going to be starting a series entitled, Join the Journey. Join the Journey. And I think that's the theme of Mark. This is the 24th book I'm doing in the New Testament of the 24 years that I've been here at Triad. I've covered 24 books of the New Testament, verse by verse, phrase by phrase. And so, chapter by chapter. I want to continue to do that. I've got three books left, and I've been through the most difficult books, so Mark is not a difficult book, but it's a wonderful book to go through, and I've never gone through it chapter by chapter, and so I want to do that today. We're going to read verses 1 to 13, so would you stand with me now as we read God's Word? Mark 1, 1 to 13. Now, just before I begin this message, I would like you to use your imagination. And here's what I'd like you to do. I want you to think back to the year 64 A.D. when they would have first had this gospel read to them. They wouldn't have gathered in a service like this. They wouldn't have been in a large auditorium. There may would have been a handful of people, maybe 35, 40 people in the church, but they would not have gathered in the city of Rome. This is written to Gentile Christians in Rome. They would have gathered underneath the city of Rome in the catacombs. So I want you to imagine you would be in the catacombs with them because above the city, Nero is raging in persecution against the Christians. And so they are hiding down there for their life. They've got skeletons on one side, cadavers on the other. They're sitting on a dirt floor with candlelight. And someone walks into the room and for the first time, they hear the book of Mark read to them. Just, just try to fathom that as we read it this morning. Okay, use your imagination for this. Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written on Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem and they were be, being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around the waist and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, after me one is coming who is mightier than I and I'm not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts. And the angels were ministering to him. You may be seated. One of the favorite customs of one of our great war generals, General Douglas MacArthur, 
during World War II in the South Pacific. He would spend seasons at his home with his wife. And his wife, every time he would go back to war, she would get that look in her eyes, that fear. And so he began a custom in his home that before he would leave the house to go to war or whether he'd go to the grocery store, he'd say to his wife before he left the house, don't worry, honey, I shall return. And so he said that to his wife many, many times to try to relieve the fear in her eyes when he would leave for war. At a certain period during the World War, there was a counteroffensive by Japan against all of the South Pacific Islands. And Japan was making this counteroffensive all the way from the Philippines as far as Hawaii, which you know as the attack on Pearl Harbor. And in that long, long of counteroffensive attacks, MacArthur became trapped unexpectedly in the Bataan Peninsula of the Philippines. While he was there, a letter or a Morse code was sent directly to MacArthur from President Roosevelt. Roosevelt feared there would be great fallout for his men if a great man like General MacArthur was captured by the Japanese. And so he ordered him to get on a submarine that night and escape from the Bataan Peninsula and leave his men. He reluctantly obeyed the order given to him, but he didn't go out by submarine that night. He went out by a PT boat. Before he got onto the PT boat, some of the Filipino leaders and some of his own men who felt betrayed by MacArthur, he looked them in the eyes and he saw the fear that he saw in his wife's eyes. They felt betrayed and they were scared. Filipinos were scared for their country. And so he said to them, don't worry, I shall return. And he did. And he ended World War II. Now, when you say that to your wife, that may not be much of a momentous event for her to hear, don't worry, honey, I shall return. But when you do it on the cusp of the occasion of war, that phrase went down in the corridors of time and will never be forgotten, forgotten by MacArthur because of his commitment to his men and to the country of the Philippines. I shall return. The reason that phrase is so important is because it sets a context for the great occasion or conflict of war. And it's important you only understand phrases in their context. And the reason I told you that story is not only do I enjoy telling that story, but I also want you to understand that if you'll never really understand Mark unless you understand the context. And it's important you understand the who, the what, the where, the why, the how of everything behind this book so that you can relate and understand what God is trying to do in your life. So my goal here this morning is to give you some background of these kind of questions and answers. And I know that's not the most exciting sermon, but I think it's necessary to understand the importance of Mark for your life. So let me mention a few of these things, and I'll try to make them as interesting as possible, okay? Number one, the author. The author is Mark. The author is Mark, 
in the book of Mark, or more specifically, John Mark. And so John Mark is an acquaintance of the Apostle Paul. And so he knew the Apostle Paul well because he wanted to travel with him, but he got homesick and wanted to go back home, and Paul fired him and said, go ahead, get out of here. You can't hack it, go home. Well, Barnabas got upset at Paul, and they had a big debate over that and discussion, and it broke out into such a, a way that Barnabas said, I'm going back with John Mark. This guy still has potential. Paul says, go with him. And they split. And Barnabas goes with John Mark, and he takes him back to his hometown. And there Barnabas starts to disciple him and train him and use him among the Jewish people. And while he's being trained by the Jewish people, years later, he is reacquainted with Paul, and Paul realizes the mistake he made with John Mark. And he says, bring him with me. He is profitable for the ministry. And he became very profitable at the end of Paul's ministry. But providentially, what God was doing is he was getting John Mark back into the Jewish society where he got to know this famous guy named Peter. And Peter began to tell him all the eyewitness accounts that he had with Jesus Christ. And with those eyewitnesses accounts, he got to learn all the stories, and so he started writing them down. And after he wrote them all down, he decided to write a book and put it into a theme or an idea that would make sense to people who were in Rome who were Gentile Christians. So that's his audience. He's writing to Gentile Christians in Rome that are under persecution. And so the author is John Mark. The audience is the persecuted Christians in Rome. And John Mark is going to use this as an opportunity to explain to you what's behind these eyewitnesses' account. Now, this type of literature is called a witness document in those days. A witness document. It was a fast-paced drama written in three acts. Act 1, Jesus in Galilee. This is chapters 1 to 8. Now, the amazing thing about this is Jesus kind of blows everybody away in chapters 1 to 8, and everybody asks the question through chapter 1 to 8, who is this guy? Who is this guy? And so they're blown away by Jesus, but the question is never answered by Mark because he's got a point to make. The second drama uh, act is act 2, Jesus on the way. The key phrase in chapters 8 to 11 is Jesus on the way from Galilee to Jerusalem. The theme here is that the disciples don't quite understand what it means to follow Jesus. They question how he is going to be a Messiah because they're looking for a Messiah king. And that's why Peter even announces, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. But what Peter means by that is, I hope you're the Messiah king that overtakes Rome and destroys them so we can have some status and uh, popularity here. See, he totally misunderstands discipleship. He's trying to figure out what it means to join the journey with Jesus. And then Act 3 is chapters 11 to 15, and this is the paradox of how Jesus becomes the Messiah King. He doesn't do it in the way that, he, that uh, Peter thought he should or any of the other disciples thought. He does it by suffering, by humility, by being a servant. 
That just doesn't sound like the way they want to really follow Jesus. And that's how Jesus says, it's going to be so rough for me, I'm going to a cross, and I'm going to be crucified naked on a cross before the people to die for their sin. They can't quite grasp all of that, but that is exactly the drama that is unfolded by Mark. And Mark puts it in such a way that he's going to tell his readers, this man is worth following. Now, let me give you the life situation for the readers. The readers are in Rome. They're Christians. They're Gentiles. Nero has come to the throne in 54 AD. Now, when Nero came to the throne, he wasn't a bad guy. Matter of fact, he had five years of calm in Rome. But we don't know why. There's lots of historians that have different reasons for this. But in his fifth year, 59 AD, he went crazy. He went absolutely crazy, and he started having these radical acts of cruelty against his own people, radical acts of cruelty against anyone he could, and great uh, overdoses of immorality throughout the city, and he just went nuts. Just a few years later, in 64 AD then, there's the great fire of Rome, and the city of Rome is devastated. The fire rages on for day after day, unquenched, and they can't stop it. And eventually it takes over 80% of the city of Rome is destroyed. And now that the city is destroyed, it had been comparable to our day of something like Hiroshima or Nagasaki, where bombs were dropped, it was like just totally decimated. It, was, it wasn't until 1,900 years later after that that the fire was quenched, that electricity and Internet were restored to the city. Just making sure you're paying attention, all right? Are you paying attention? All right. <laughs> so Nero attempts to defray responsibility off himself because everybody blames him for the fire in Rome. Well, that's what politicians do. How am I going to get this off my back? And so he tries to look for a culprit, somebody else to blame besides him. He can't blame it on the war in Ukraine. He can't blame it on the pandemic. So what's he going to do? So he says the Christians are at fault. The Christians are at fault. They're to blame for the burning of Rome. Look at them. They're antisocial. They're anti-religious. They're fanatics who bore the name of Jesus Christ. So Nero takes all of his military and he rounds them up as many as he can find. That's why they hid in the catacombs for most of the time. Any he could find and he arrests them, has them persecuted and killed. This is the life situation of those in Rome when they receive the book of Mark. Well, the first thing Nero comes up with is the Circus Maximus. We get the word circus from it. But in those days, it was races, chariot races, foot races, all different kinds of events and activities that would take place at the Circus Maximus. He would take the Christians that he had captured, and he would give them a 10-second start on the race. They could run out of the, of the start for 10 seconds, and then behind that, he would loose lions on them. Thousands and thousands of people would go to watch this. 150,000, it is estimated, that would surround themselves at the Circus Maximus to see the lions chase the Christians. Sometimes they would, the lions would play with them. Sometimes the lions would eat them. But they would do whatever they wanted to the Christians at the Circus Maximum. Another thing Nero liked to do is he liked to take the Christians and dip them 
in tar. And then he would put them on a post by his garden, and he would ignite their body alive, and he would light up his gardens every night. The third thing he liked to do is he liked to clothe them in the skins of wild animals at the Colosseum. This was the favorite of the crowds, to go and watch these Christians being dressed up in skins of wild animals, and then he would release wild, feral dogs to attack them and eat them till they died in front of them. This is the way that Nero got the focus off of himself. So Mark writes a book, and he has all this in his mind as he's writing this book, and he addresses these struggling Christians to realize that their suffering Savior had experiences very similar to them. Even when he started his ministry, he went out into the wilderness for 40 days with the wild beasts. See, they would have made that connection that my brother or my family member or a friend of mine was eaten by wild beasts. And so their connection would have been there. They would have seen these kind of things that maybe we don't pick up on right away and driven into the wilderness like Jesus and his suffering for us to remind them that their salvation in Christ is still secure even though they're going through what they're going through. All right, with that, let me just look at a few verses here. I'm still going to give you some more background material, but I want you to see this. Look at verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, what I want you to note here, this is the only time in the book of Mark that Mark tells us what he thinks of Jesus. He doesn't tell us any other time. He just says, this is what I think of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, he's going to spend the rest of his book to influence anybody who will get on the journey and join Jesus. This is what it's going to take, and that's what he's going to do. He wants to bring you along and be a disciple of Jesus Christ, and this is what it will cost you to be that disciple. So he's going to try to convince you of that. Now, verse 2 says, as is written Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. So the very first thing Mark does then is he takes us immediately to the Old Testament and he quotes three guys. He quotes Malachi, he quotes Isaiah, and he quotes Moses in Exodus. And he takes their three quotes and he puts them into his own quote. He kind of draws all three of the quotes together into two verses and he merges these three prophecies and says, the Old Testament prophecy says, if a... Messiah was to come, there must be a forerunner, there must be a herald, someone who comes before him, and he must be like Elijah. Now remember, Elijah never died, he was taken up in a chariot, he was raptured out, and so because he was taken out, the people were always looking for an Elijah to come back and herald the Messiah to come. And so with that, this would have piqued national interest more than Jesus even coming. Because the people are saying, after 400 years of silence, here's a guy who's coming like Elijah. So they asked him, John, are you he who is to come? Are you Elijah? And John would look at them and say, no, I'm not him. So they'd go to Jesus and they ask Jesus, Jesus, who is John? Jesus said, he's Elijah. He's Elijah who is to come. 
John said, I'm not Elijah. Jesus said, yes, he is. <laughs> now, how do you reconcile that? You got two pretty uh, honest guys saying, the sa saying different things. How do you reconcile that when you study the scriptures? It's important you understand when we look at the whole picture, the whole picture is this, that John came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And so that's why John never said, I'm Elijah. He said, I'm John the Baptist. That's who I am, okay? Jesus was saying the ministry of Elijah was fulfilled in the work of John the Baptist. So John told the truth. And Jesus was saying, is you're not literally Elijah, but you are in his spirit and power, and you fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies that are to come in you, John, through Elijah. So that's why Mark says... John is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Now, it's very important you understand this, because if you're going to study a book, you want to understand some of these things that don't look apparent to you. But the most repeated phrase in the book of Mark is the word wilderness. We call this in literature a motif. When you have a dominant repeating theme, it doesn't matter who you are, in a writer, as a writer, you usually have a dominant theme that is a motif in your literature, if you're a good writer. And so, here's his motif. His motif is this concept of the wilderness, a, a repeating central idea that he's going to come back to. Now, what should that mean? And you should note this, so when you read the book of Mark, you'll get it. It is a place of testing. The wilderness is always a place of testing in your life, a place of testing, Okay? So, everybody who chooses to get on the journey with Jesus Christ has to have places of testing in their life. Now, let me make this clear, okay? You're not paying for your sins because you did something in your past. You're going through your wilderness because you're being tested. You're being tested. The people in Rome were losing their children. They were losing their family members. They were losing their friends. The worthless causes that Nero would come up with it just seems so empty. It seems so purposeless and vain. But that was their wilderness testing. Jesus had to go into the wilderness for 40 days and be tempted by Satan and the wild beasts in the wilderness. Then he had to be tempted as he went to a cross. All of his life was a wilderness of wanderings. John the Baptist spent his whole life in the wilderness. See, these are the themes that come back and back again. So what, 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 is, what is your wilderness? What is your wilderness? If you don't have one, <laughs> you aren't on the journey with Jesus Christ. It's the places in your life of danger. It's the places of fear. It's the places of isolation. Places of rejection the places of abandonment, the places of being ostracized. These are the things that are your wilderness, and you're going to be tested in those things in your life because this life is about a test. You say, why do I have to go through a test? Because he's preparing you for another place. This is just a journey to get you to the ultimate destination. And those that come there, he wants to see how you do in the testing period because there's rewards. There's things that you go through that God says, man, I see what you're going through. I know what you're up against. And I like how you're persevering. I like how you're holding up. I like how you're handling that. 
I like what you said to that person. See, it is those kind of things that God is looking at in our lives. So, so Mark began in the wilderness because that's the traditional meeting place between God and his people. Remember when I told you about Abraham a couple weeks ago? Abraham, I found you in the desert. I found a howling desert, but that's where I found you. Because that's where I meet with people when I want to do something. I meet them in a dry desert when I want to start with people. Moses, I found you on the backside of a desert in a burning bush. Israel, I brought you out of Egypt and took you into the wilderness. Elijah, I fed you with ravens in the wilderness. Over and over and over. And Mark's picking up on that grand theme in his book. So I don't want you to miss that, all right? So having said that, then let me kind of try to draw this sermon together for you, okay? Verse 9 says that then Jesus from Nazareth, so that's about 70 miles away, he made a 70-mile hike down to... Uh, the River Jordan, down above the Dead Sea there, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. He comes into the wilderness because that's where he's going to be. He's going to be baptized there. And John sees him and says, man, I don't need to baptize you. I got a baptism service going on here, and these are for people that need to get ready for you. You don't need to be baptized, John. And, And Jesus says, John, I understand Just allow it for now. You'll understand it when you get to heaven. But right now, y'all, I need you to baptize me. See, he doesn't get it himself. John doesn't get it. And so John says, okay, whatever you say, Jesus. And so he baptizes him there. Now, Now, the question is, why did he baptize him when he doesn't need a baptism of repentance like everybody else does? Everybody else needs to get ready for the coming of this Messiah. And and the simple answer is this, that, that he was being identified with his people. That's the simple answer. He's being identified with his people. He's going to go down into the water, which is going to symbolize his death. He's going to come up out, and that's going to be his resurrection. And that pictures, that pictures the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And therefore, Jesus says, I'm going to get so identified with you that I'm going to take your sin, I'm going to take your pain, I'm going to take your suffering, I'm going to take your sorrow, and I'm going to bear it all on a cross. See, that's, that's the ultimate idea of that. Now, what, what you may not know, and I want you to understand, because this is kind of my passion for this message, is the location. I want to show you a picture of Israel first, because some of you may not be familiar with it, but if you look at this picture, there's Israel, and then you see the surrounding countries, and there's the Mediterranean Sea, and so you have some feel for where this is. But I want you to notice the two lakes there. The little lake up above is the Sea of Galilee in blue, and then the Jordan River is the river that stems down into the Dead Sea. Now, the Dead Sea is literally dead. There's nothing that grows there. It's 18% minerals and salt, and therefore nothing can sustain life there. It's, it's, it's a desert and wilderness. All right, go to the next slide. This next slide then shows you more specifically where he baptized. He baptized just a few miles above the Dead Sea in the Jordan River, and you find out as you study history, this is the exact place That's the exact place that when Israel crossed into the promised land, they crossed into the same place that Jesus was baptized. So they went down through the Jordan waters, and Jesus went down into the Jordan waters. And that's important to note, all right? As a matter of fact, that becomes the central thing that Mark's trying to pick up on with this wilderness. Jesus goes into the wilderness, and he goes into Jordan Israel comes out of the wilderness and goes into the Jordan to come into their promised land. 
Now, that, that's important, all right? Just hang on to that, all right? So, what's so important about that? Because everybody has to go through the River Jordan. Now, why do you have to go through the River Jordan in the Bible? Because the Jordan River is the only river in the world that flows to the lowest place on earth, the Dead Sea. Now, hear what the word means in Hebrew. It means to descend low, to descend low. Or let me give you a better translation. It means judgment. The word Jordan means judgment. So Israel had to go into their judgment when they crossed the Jordan River, and Jesus had to go into his judgment when he was baptized. It was a symbol, a picture of what was going to happen to him when he went and took our sin on a cross. So, this, this becomes such an important place and a center place, and this is why I believe Mark is picking up on this. So, when they get ready to cross this Jordan, I just want to read something to you. Joshua chapter 3, if you do want to turn there in your Bible to see this, but Joshua 3 verse 14. When they get ready to cross the Jordan, now this is Israel, I want you to see what this river would have looked like when they crossed the Jordan River. Go to the next slide. Now, that's not as big as the Red Sea, but that'd be a little difficult to get across by foot. And so what God did is he lined up two million people to my right, and he had them come up here with the priests, and he had the Ark of the Covenant out in front of them. And the Bible says this, listen to this now in Joshua chapter 3, verse 14. So when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan River with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan and the feet of the priests carrying the Ark were dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks, so it's the flood season, so it's even worse than this. It's the flood seasons and the day of the harvest. The waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap a great distance away at Adam the city that is beside Zarethan. And those which were flowing down toward the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, the dead sea, were completely cut off. Let me just explain this, okay? So you got Jesus going down into the Jordan. He's going down into judgment, all right? You got Israel, when they crossed that Jordan River, going down into judgment. Now what it took for them to go down into judgment if, the, if this is the Jordan River right here, and I'm one of the priests, and I got the Ark of the Covenant here, and I got to take the first step. The Bible says, the Bible says, the Jordan did not split open until his sole of his foot touched the water. That's a huge step of faith right there, because in order to take a step in, you have to literally believe God's going to stop those waters for you. But he did not pull back the waters until it says the feet of the priests are literally in the Hebrew. The soles of the foot of the priests hit the water. Now, why was that so important? Listen to this verse, Joshua 1, verse 3. God said to Joshua, every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you. God was telling Joshua, you walk around that land and anywhere you walk, it's yours. If you see some water and you step on that water, it's yours. But what it requires from you, Joshua, what it requires from you, priest, what it requires from you, triad, is you have to have the faith to believe 
that when I put my foot in the water, it's going to open up. Takes faith. Takes faith. You, you, you can talk all day long about what you want to do for God, but there's some point in your life where you got to come up to the water and you got to get your feet wet. You got to step out and say, God, I believe you can do this in my life and I'm trusting you. Whatever that may be, wherever you are in your life, I'm trusting you. I'm, I'm just going to get my feet wet. But I'm not going to open anything up in your life until I see the evidence of your faith stepping forward to say, I believe you, God. And once God sees that, once you get your feet wet, God says, now I'm going to open up some water for you. This, this is what he's doing in this whole wilderness motif throughout the book of Mark, just so you catch that in your mind, all right? So capture that because if you're going to walk with God, you're going to be put into situations where it's going to feel like you're stepping into death judgment, the deep waters, and you're going to have to keep stepping into something that you don't know what's going to happen. And God says, but if the sole of your foot hits there and I see your faith, I'll respond to that and I'll open up the waters. It was like that in the Old Testament. It's going to be like that in the book of Mark. And that's what he's challenging these Roman Christians to believe. God, they're, they're saying, God, uh, God is saying to them, will you believe me? Whatever, whatever I'm doing in your life, There is a huge plan behind that. There's a huge scheme, and I just want you to have the faith to trust me. Now, let me just step back from that teaching there for a minute and just illustrate it from my life. When I look at some about, I I wrote down about 10 experiences. I'm not going to share them all with you today. I wrote down about 10 experiences, but I think there's a couple that have been like watersheds for my life that I can go back to and I can say, this is where I clearly saw God work when I took a chance and risked some things for him. One was 23 years of age when I was going in the ministry. I decided to move from North Carolina after I finished school to go to Winona Lake, Indiana. Never been to Winona Lake. Didn't know anything about Indiana. Didn't know a soul in Indiana except my friend who was getting ready to graduate from Grace Theological Seminary. My professor at school said, there's only two schools to pick for your master's degree. I I believed him. He said, it's either Dallas Theological Seminary or it's Grace Theological Seminary. Well, Grace Theological was 14 hours from my house and Dallas was 20. So I picked Grace. That was the the wisdom in that. But what I knew in my heart was I was going to have to take a risk. I was going to have to step out and say, God, I'm going to take some chances here in my life. 23 years of age was a key moment in my life. I'd take some little chances up to them, but now I'm taking a big one. I moved up to Indiana with my wife, no job, no apartment to live in, 500 bucks and a U-Haul. That's all I had. My wife didn't even want to go to Indiana. When she would go up there in the early years, she'd say, it's God-forsaken Indiana. It's just a bunch of pigs, and it's flat, and that's what she'd do to criticize it. But you know what? You know where she'd like to live today? South Whitley, Indiana. A little town in the middle of nowhere with all these pigs around the city, and she would love to live there because she said, it's just like Andy Griffith, Mayberry RFT. <laughs> she still feels that way. You could ask her today. And so anyways, I took her up there. She didn't even want to go. We took her, uh, we got up there on a Saturday night. We stayed with our friends. We slept in the living room of their floor and uh, we prayed again. I said, God, I believe you want me up here. I can't prove it, but God, I'm going to take a chance. I'm going to put my foot in. And sometimes you have to do that. You have to take risks. You have to put your foot in the water. And God's waiting for you to do that. 
Because some of you just want the sure bet. You want to make sure everything's going to work out, and you don't want to take that risk. And sometimes God wants you to risk something for him. And so I risked my whole future, my whole career on that. And I put my feet in the water. And that next day was Sunday. We got up, we went to church, we worshiped the Lord. We didn't do anything that day. And there I was all day Sunday because I believe just in simple faith, put him first, put him first. And I have, God, I'm putting you first today. And then Monday came and I went out and hit the streets. I got to get a job, got to get a job, got to get a job. I got to get my wife a job. So we were taking her around. I was going around. And let me tell you something, still didn't have a place to live, didn't have any jobs. I was dwindling now from 500 bucks down to about 400 bucks, and I was getting worried about it. But I'm telling you, and I'm, not, I'm just going to shorten this story, within four days, four days, I had a job, she got a job at the seminary, half to my tuition, paid for my full insurance benefits with her, and we had a place to live within four days. Now, would I ever do that again? No, no, I would not ever do that again. But you know, when you're 23 and you're trying to make some decisions about your life, that's a level of risk for you. And for me, God, I want to do something for you, and I watch God provide. It's an amazing journey. I can tell you story after story after story, but that's one of those watersheds for me. The other watershed is when I came to this church. I've been here 24 years now. I'll be 25 at the end of the summer here. And when I came to this church, I still remember this so clearly. Uh, when God gave me a vision for Tribev's church, and the, the, to put it simple to you, buy more land, that just became a clear vision to me as part of the vision God gave me. And every time a piece of property came up, you know what I would do? When that first 18 acres over here came up, we were on 9.8 acres at the time. First 18 acres came up. The first thing I did is I said, Fine, tell me the boundaries of that 18 acres. And I went out and I walked every foot of it. As simple as that is to you, I just want you to know. I said, God, I believe you want us to have this land. Can't prove it. Can't prove it to anybody in the church, but I really believe we ought to have this land. And I walked that whole land just like Joshua would have put his sole of his foot and just like those priests would have put their foot in the water. And I said, God, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to believe you for this. We bought that 18 acres. 5.5 acres, it used to be all wooded right there. They used to call this the church in the woods, by the way, because everything was wooded at that time. And, and that was wooded over there, and so I, I, I did the same thing. This one took us about five, six years to get because Baptist Hospital didn't want to sell the land to us. And so we just have to, kept waiting until the one at the, uh, uh, the Kernersville Hospital with Forsyth and the vet came in, and they realized they couldn't compete with the size of that piece of property, and so now they wanted to discuss us buying it. But I went out there, and all 5.5 acres, I walked around with the square of the soles of my feet, and I walked it off, and I said, I prayer walked. Prayer walked just like I did the last time. I said, God, I believe we should have this land that's connected to our property. I can't see a better deal. And so I just prayer walked that land. When this 92 acres came out, I said, that's a lot of land to walk. I told the deacons, find me the edge of those properties. I'm going to walk the whole thing. I'm going to prayer walk the whole thing. I prayer walked the whole 92 acres, just like in the book of Joshua. Now, I'm not telling you you have to go out and do that, okay? I'm just telling you this is how my simple faith looked at my life and just said, I believe this is a risk for God, and I believe it's a good risk for the 92 acres. And so I walked those off, and I prayed over those. I'm just telling you, in my life, there's been some watershed moments where I had to say, I'm going to step out in faith, and I'm going to get my feet wet. Now, some of you have had to do worse things than I have because this isn't like a, a wealth and health sermon, like if you just step out, everything's going to be okay. Let me tell you something. Sometimes you're going to step out and you're going to lose a child. Sometimes you're going to step out and you're going to lose a job. 
Listen, the things I'm talking about, they're surface getting your feet wet. But some of you have had to go deeper in the water. You've had to go much deeper in the water. And when you go deeper in the water like that, that's when really your faith is tested in a greater way than just you're going to buy the land or you're going to move up to Indiana. Those are, those are nothing compared to that. And some of you are being tested in ways like that that the waters are much deeper. And what God's going to do with your life is he's just going to say, are you willing to get your feet wet and allow me to do what I'm going to do in your life? Some of you I know are dealing with some of these things right now, personal things you've told me about that you're struggling with, wrestling with, things that are on your heart and you can't believe it. You didn't even want to take the step. It's almost like God made you step. And now you're in it. And you have to ask yourself, God, why have you got my feet wet on this? Why are you taking me through this? What's the test, God? I want to be conformed to the image of your son. I don't get it all the time. I don't understand it. I'm in pain. I feel isolated. I feel alone. And on and on you go, because there's your wilderness. God's saying, you go ahead and trust me. You trust me. Whether it's way up here or way down here, get your feet wet. See what I'll do in your life. Let's pray. Just with every head bowed, eyes closed, I, I just I come before you just sharing some of the things in my heart. Some of you knew those things in my past. But I want to tell you something. Sometimes you, get, you step into things that feel like death. They feel like judgment. They feel like that. You're not being judged. You're not being judged at all. If you're a child of God, he's conforming you to the image of his son. And he may take you some, through some deep, deep waters. But he's telling you, I'm telling you, he's telling you, get your feet wet. Get your feet wet. Get the promise from me and step out in faith. Say, God, I believe you. Whatever you take me through, whatever you do with me, wherever you turn my life, whatever, whatever direction it is, God, I'm just going to have to trust you. Because it looks like it doesn't make sense to why my child would be fed to the lion's or why my husband would be fed to the lions. Nobody in here would ever want to have faced that. But this is exactly what they needed. They needed to understand their wilderness. And my prayer for you is that you understand your wilderness. That there are times that God puts you in places where he says, will you get your feet wet and trust me? I'm just asking that to this audience. Just your head bowed, your eyes closed. Praise team is going to come as they come to sing. Let me just say this. Is there someone right now that maybe is in a situation right now that, that they're thinking that through and they just lift their hand and say, hey, I'm, I'm willing to get my feet wet. I'm willing to get my feet wet. I don't know what God's doing in my life, but I'm willing to get my feet wet. Would you just lift up your hand so I could see that hand? I want to pray over you. I want to pray over Yes, I see. Yes. Others, others, just before I pray. Yes, God is trying to do a work in your life. Let's pray. Father God, I lift it up. I lay it at your feet. I pray for these hands that have gone up, Lord, for whatever's going on in their heart, their life. Whether it's confusion or whether it's the risk of reward, of having some land, having a ministry, whatever it may be, God, from enjoyment to pure pain. Lord, I pray you would take them and I pray you'd use them to rest in you. So God, I lift it up to you now, and I ask it in Jesus' name, amen.